Welcome to Art of the Kickstart, your source for crowdfunding campaign success. I'm your host, Roy Morjan, president of Inventus Partners, the top full-service turnkey product development and crowdfunding marketing agency in the world. We have helped startups raise over $100 million for our clients since 2010. Each week, I'll interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert in order to help you take your startup to the next level with crowdfunding. Art of the Kickstart is honored to be sponsored by Backerkit and The Gadget Flow. Backerkit makes software that crowdfunding project creators use to survey backers, organize data, and manage orders for fulfillment by automating your operations and helping you print and ship faster. The Gadget Flow is a product discovery platform that helps you discover, save, and buy awesome products. It is the ultimate buyer's guide for luxury gadgets and creative gifts. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to another edition of Art of the Kickstart. Today I am joined with Vincent Lotempio. Vincent, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoy this kind of thing. So, Vincent, you are an expert on intellectual property law, and you have a key focus on patent and trademark laws. And obviously, this is super helpful to all of our entrepreneurs, our businesses, our startups, our creators, understanding, you know, copyright and all of these other things. So I definitely want to give an opportunity for you to tell our audience a bit more about your background and how you got into patent and trademark law. Well, I'm not being a typical patent attorney. I started working as a district attorney in Erie County, and at about 35 years old, I went back to school and got a degree in uh, chemistry, because you need to have a science background to take the patent bar. I'm, I'm almost 58 years old, and I started uh, practicing uh, intellectual property when I was 40 in about 2000. And uh, I, I just didn't want to be the person who was defending all these criminals I was putting in jail, and I wanted to change myself. I basically did my own startup, and I, 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 I uh, recreated who I was. I went back to school, I got my degree in chemistry, and I started doing uh, intellectual property work, and it's been, a, it's been a fun ride ever since. I, I've done a lot of um, cool things. I was on uh, the History Channel for the Million uh, Dollar Genius show that they have on Friday nights for the inventor of the selfie stick. He actually um, invented it in Toronto. He's from Toronto, and we're from in Western New York, so he's looking for a pan attorney right all across the border. And I connected up with him, and I ended up on nationwide television for that. Uh, it's, I've got a couple real big corporate clients in the, in the last 10 years, and everything's kind of taken off for me. And, and especially with the internet, it's so easy to, to meet people from all over the world. No, that's really cool. Obviously, the selfie stick was a quite a big thing that's still a phenomenon going on. But it's interesting that you work with, you know, the higher end corporate clients and, you know, the first time inventors that have a new idea that potentially have never obviously marketed it, manufactured it and everything in between. Can you talk to us and get kind of everybody on the same page in terms of an overview of what what a patent is, what a trademark is and, you know, anything in between there? Yeah, it's, it's quite true. I work with, I, I jokingly say, with the mother with the new baby bottle nipple and all the way up to a corporate, uh, big corporate client. And, and even the corporate uh, clients, even their attorneys don't even understand the difference between patent, trademark, or copyright. One of the things I use as an example, uh, it's easy to, for everyone to picture, is the Coca-Cola bottle. The Coca-Cola bottle is an example of every type of intellectual property. 
It's a it's a container that holds a liquid. So if you were the first person to, to come up with the idea for a bottle, you know, the first caveman, you could have gotten to the Neolithic patent office and got a patent on a, on a bottle for the utility of it. It's called a utility patent. And it's a, a container that holds a liquid. There's also what's known as a design patent. So the look of it, the sexy look of the Coca-Cola bottle versus the Pepsi-Cola, the 7-Up bottle. I mean, in your mind, you just picture what those different bottles were. So, so the design is for the aesthetic look of it, and, and, the, and the, the bottle that holds the liquid is for the use of it, the utility. So on the outside of the bottle, we have the, the name Coca-Cola. It's its trademark. It's, uh, a trademark is a source indicator. It's a mark that you put on a product or you advertise your service with to indicate who the source of the product is, the good, or the services, you know, if you're an accounting firm or something. So that's your, your trademark, and you can, if, you can argue probably that it's a work of art. It's like a, um, like a statue, so that would be the copyright protection. Although I tried to sneak a couple of um, functional things like a bottle or a glass past the copyright office, and they don't let you register those if it's a functional thing. But it's, it's just for this, for this example, um, you can think of maybe books, CDs, like, well, lyrics, those are things that you get a copyright. And copyright essentially is just what it says. No one has a right to copy this thing, you know, this book or this song, unless I give them permission if I own the copyright in it. And finally, inside the, the Coca-Cola bottle is a, a trade secret. It's like the, the, their secret recipe, like Kentucky Fried Chicken. So trade secret, you, can, you keep it a secret, just like it says. You don't tell anybody how to make it. Since, like, 1900, Coca-Cola's kept it secret. And they've, they've gone through great lengths to keep it secret. They, have, they actually have three separate, you know, buildings, for one for manufacturing, one for marketing, and one for distribution. And they're not even allowed to talk to each other. And there's only a few people that have the actual whole recipe together and and they break it down so, so when they put it together that uh, each person puts their little part and it all becomes, you know, a whole. So trade secret is another thing. And one thing that just, just popped in my mind is trade dress. So the look of something like the look of the McDonald's restaurant, like the bottom of the Christian Lovatan shoes, red, or the, or the brown UPS truck, um, that's, a, that's a trade dress. In fact, in 1964, Coca-Cola registered the trade dress, the look of a Coca-Cola bottle. You might think even if you sold like a, a maybe a bottle of perfume, you know, using the Coca-Cola bottle would have great value. And so I'm going to try to do that. But you, you couldn't do that because Coca-Cola has protected the, the look of that bottle. So I guess that's a, a short version of, of the difference between the different types of intellectual property. No, that's a great overview, Vincent. So for all the inventors and entrepreneurs that we work with or that listen to this show, give them the pitch on why they should file trademark or patent or copyright applications for their idea or invention? Well, first let's just talk about common law versus statutory law. So when you file your registration for, for patent, trademark, trademark, or copyright, you're getting statutory federal protection. Now, the, the federal government basically has the right to, to rule on, in, in, uh, on individuals in the states Based on the commerce clause, that there's commerce in between the club, between the between the states. So if you if you file your trademark and you you register it, you'll get nationwide protection. Whereas if you just 
try to say, look, I'm the first one to use it. I have common law rights in it. You're going to only have local geographic rights as to where you're actually using it. So if you're just using it in your locality, you're not going to get national coverage. With copyright, it's very difficult to prove damages. You know, if you fall and break your leg as you're walking in front of somebody's house, you know, the, the local um, attorneys that do um, personal injury, you know, they'll have like a broken leg is worth X number of dollars, a broken arm is worth this number of dollars. But when somebody copies your, your, your pamphlet or your book and they sell one product, how, how, do you, how do you define what your damages are? So the good thing about filing your registration is that you get statutory damages, $150,000 statutory damage for, for one infringement. So you have to prove your damages. So, so it's very important for, for that reason alone. I have, a, I have like a, a checklist of all the benefits of, of, uh, of registering. And I, if anybody wants it, they can go to my website at latempialaw.com or even send me an email at, at uh, Vincent at latempialaw.com and I can, I can send it to you. But, but uh, those are a couple of the major reasons why you want to register it. Um, a patent or, or, or sorry, that, uh, trademark or copyright. For a patent, um, a patent doesn't give you a right to make something. A patent gives you a right to stop other people from copying your thing. So it's possible you could get a patent on something and not even be allowed to make it. And that, that sounds a little funny. I, I use a, um, an example of a pencil. So say you were the first person to invent the pencil. You worked at a in a, um, a lumber yard and you took a small piece of lumber and you, you made a, a cylindrical borehole through it and you put a piece of graphite in the middle and you invented the pencil and you were the first person to get the pen on the pencil. And your wife, she works at Element Rubber and she's been using your pencil and she gets the patent on the eraser, you know, because she found this little piece of rubber works very well for erasing your pencil marks. Now, um, I, I buy your pencil and her erasers, but I'm very, I always lose them. So I decided I'm going to get uh, uh, the patent on the pencil with an eraser on the end. So even though, you know, I have the patent for the pencil with the eraser, I can't make pencils because somebody else has that, that patent. And I can't make erasers because somebody else has that patent. So nobody really can make that pencil with the eraser. So what do I do? Cross license. Or I buy your pencils and I buy your wife's erasers and I make them myself. But, so the, the patent itself doesn't give you a right to make it. It gives you a right to stop others from making it. And I guess that's the, the question for startups and entrepreneurs. What's the worst thing that could happen? You can start making money and all of a sudden somebody's copying your intellectual property. You know, that's the, the danger. There was a thing I, I saw in 60 Minutes. They call him the Mensch of Massachusetts. I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head. But he was the first person to invent those, uh, the, those sweatshirts, those like real fluffy sweatshirts, like Gore-Tex or something that they were made out of, you know, when they first came out. And he didn't get a patent on it. And he had like, I don't know, thousands of people in this whole town working for him. And then people started copying him, and he couldn't keep up with the big competition. And, and thousands of people in the entire city lost their jobs. All because he didn't spend, what, $10,000 to get a patent? I always say, you know, if, if you're not making any money, spending $10,000 to get a patent might as well be a million. But, but if you if you got the potential to make millions of dollars on something, spending $10,000 is, is, is not a lot of money. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up, you know, the cost of it. Obviously, for, for some of these startups that are listening, 
you know, 10,000 is, is a is a hefty expense. At what stage, let's say in, in the product development process, should an inventor file for this application? Or do you think it's something that, you know, once they launch their crowdfunding campaign and they're seeing success, they file it at that point? What are your thoughts there? Well, there are certain rules. If you're offering for sale, use it in public or publish it anywhere, like in a magazine or, you know, the website, you have one year from that date to, to file your patent application. If you don't file it, you, you lose all your patent rights. I, I wrote a blog post. If you probably went and just typed in Facebook and my name, Latempio, and you read the blog post, where Facebook was sued by somebody for, for copying their idea, some, some part of the Facebook page. And they went to trial, and the jury came back, and the jury found that there was actual infringement. But they also found that the person offered his idea for sale more than a year before he filed his patent application, and they knocked his application completely out. So that's, that's the danger of, of not filing. The other part is the rules are now different than they were just a few years ago. It used to be the first venture gets the patent. So if you came to my office on January 1st, and you filed it on February 1st, and then somebody else filed it on January 15th, we can put together what's called the swearing back affidavit and swear that, that you were in my office on January 1st and you had this idea and, and we didn't file until February 4th, so we want to swear back to our January 1st date. But that's all gone now. The rule is now the first inventor to file the application wins the race to the patent office. So if you wait, you can lose your patent rights. If, if you don't file it, as, it, it before you make it public, you have a chance of losing your patent rights. So it's it's a race to the patent office. So Vincent, we've had a, a client in the past that we worked with run a crowdfunding campaign, Josh Malone. We ran the Bunch of Balloons crowdfunding campaign years and years ago. It got massive success, you know, about a million dollars on the campaign. And then uh, a, an infringer came along, Telebrands came off and basically knocked off his, his patent, his product and everything and rushed to the market with all of their knockoffs. And now Josh is, you know, Basically, he had to fight, I think, the to, to the tune of over $17 million in terms of what his patent has cost to, to fight it. What are, what are your thoughts there for these crowdfunding campaigns that see great success and then some of these other companies just go and knock them off? What, what can they do to potentially protect themselves? Well, I mean, it certainly is scary. It's not, you know, it, it should take it into the courthouse and, and you still have to be able to afford the, the cost once you're there. I mean, if you don't, the thing is, if they didn't have that patent, there wouldn't be any type of a, a lawsuit. You know, they would just they would just be copied. So I, I don't know any details of the of the bunch of balloons um, deal, but but uh, at the end of the day, if you don't have the patent, there's nothing you can do. I, I know it's a it's a big expense. One of the things um, early on in the in the process is a simple thing as a provisional patent application. It's meant for startups and and people that are. Um, you know, not the big corporate clients that they can't afford the, to pay for the, the patents. So the idea is that you can file a, a patent application and preserve the filing date and have a year to file the non-provisional. And there's not as many um, requirements in the, in the cost. Uh, the actual government fee is, is a lot lower. I actually bill it out at $1,500 to, to file it because I, I really want to put four or five hours in there at least. To, 
to make it look like a real patent application. I've seen um, things on the internet where they'll file a provisional for like $69, and I'm like, what the hell are they doing? They're probably not doing anything for you. They're probably just filing whatever you gave them. So you, you want to make sure that there's enough in that provisional application that's going to cover you when you go to file the non-provisional. So that gives you a year to see if you're getting some sort of traction and you're getting some sort of money to, to protect it. Yeah, I, I think um, these, these lawsuits, um, you know, they run into millions of dollars to defend. At the end of the day, it's probably a good thing for you because if, if you uh, weren't making any money, you weren't selling anything, nobody would be copying you and you wouldn't have anything. So, I mean, I think no matter what it turns out to be, a couple of years ago was a big thing that locally here to, to, um, to start up these uh, younger students. And all the next thing you know, a couple of people made money, and then there's like 57 of them, and they, they saturated the whole you know market, and, now they're, and most of them are out of business. You know, It seems like, though, if anything makes money, they, they, people come out of the woodwork and, and try to copy it. Absolutely. So what, what would you say are some of the problems that inventors that you work with commonly face when dealing with intellectual property law? The first thing is just identifying what it is to, to see, you know, a lot of times, even like my corporate clients, we, we meet, we have like a, a committee, we call it the IP committee with the vice president and the, and the, and the uh, research and development guy, maybe a marketer. And we try to just go over what are the new things we're doing that we haven't done before. And, and let's try to identify it to see if it actually is intellectual property. Is, is it patentable subject matter? Is it, is it, um, you know, should we register our trademark? What are different ways we should register the trademark? You know, should we should we just do the name alone? Should we do the logo? You know, do we have our own Nike swoosh that we want to that we want to protect? So I think the first step is just identifying what do we have. Let's let's see what we have and and, and what's the most cost effective way to to protect it. And um, a lot of these app developers now are it's very difficult to protect them with patent. There's, I've seen a lot of these patent wars. They're, they want it to be tied somewhere to the real world, and then they say it's mostly abstract ideas, and they're not allowing it to get a to get a patent. But one of the things that uh, Steve Jobs did when he first started Apple, him and Steve Wozniak, they couldn't afford patents, and so what did they do? They used the copyrights. You know, the the algorithm of the actual software is its own language in itself. And, and you can protect that with copyright. So and it's a lot cheaper to, to, to protect it with copyright. Now, the problem with that is it doesn't protect the, um, the functionality of it and the way it functions. It just protects copying that exact code. So if somebody rewrote the code to do the same thing, which is, you know, a difficult thing to do, it's, it's kind of like a hindrance. And it's, you know, it's some kind of a hindrance to, to people copying it and stopping them from just flat out just copying your thing. So. And the same thing with, with, with trademark. A lot of the, um, the artwork that you create, the, you know, the, the logos that you create, the minute you put something in tangible form, you own the copyright in it. Uh, you have the common law rights. And we talked about the difference before, but just to make it clear, someone says, I want to trademark this or I want to copyright this. I say to them, you already done that as soon as you started using it. As soon as the minute you use it, you've you copyright it. Now you want to register that copyright or you want to register that trademark with the federal government to give you these added protections and the reasons why you do it. So those are some of the basic things that you need to do right away. I think identify what you have, try to figure out the most cost-effective way to protect it, 
and then and then filed it the right way the first time. You know, I, I always say, you know, trade, filing a trademark, especially, a lot of people try to do it themselves. It's more than just filling out the forms. It's understanding the legal requirements that go behind it and what you need to do. And a lot of people don't get that. And, and even lawyers have tried to file it on their own. And, and if you screw it up, there's chances that you can lose it forever or you have to refile it and it can't be fixed you know, once I get a hold of it. Got it. So let's let's tie this all back together, Vincent. What would you say is the number one piece of advice for someone thinking of launching and marketing their invention, either through crowdfunding like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or through other means? Well, I think the first thing before you put it up there is at least get a provisional patent application or at least a, a search to see if it's patentable subject matter or something that you can protect. And that's pretty much the way most patent attorneys work. They, you look this I call it the stop the bleeding stages. You know, if you do a patent search, and there's different types of patent searches. There's infringement searches, there's patentability searches, can I get can I protect it? And there's freedom to operate searches. I mean, am I gonna get sued by somebody else for making this thing? Um, um so at the beginning, the beginning stages is to, to determine that do I own this? Is this mine and then how do I protect it? Should I protect it with a provisional patent application if I can't afford to, to pay for a, a full-blown patent application. But, but yeah, I think, I think that's a, a first step, especially if you're going to go out there and publicize it because cause you, could, you, you, you risk losing all your rights and you miss somebody else copying it and, and patenting it themselves. I mean, what would be the worst thing? The worst thing would be if, if um, somebody else gets the patent and tells me I can't even make the thing that I invented. That would be terrible. Thank you. Vincent, all right, this is going to get us into our launch round. We're going to rapid-fire questions at you. You good to go? Sure. So what inspired you to work with entrepreneurs? Like I said, I just want to help people make the world a better place. If you could have coffee with any entrepreneur or inventor throughout history, who would it be? I think Tesla. I wanted to see if you really could uh, make sense of electricity through the air without wires. So what would have been your first question? Yeah, that would be it. Do you have a favorite patent? Well, I, I guess it's got to be the selfie stick. It got me on nationwide television. Got to love that. What book is on your nightstand? Uh, my nightstand right now, I, I listen to Audible. I, listen to, I always have books. I probably listen to a thousand books uh, in the last 20 years, but right now I'm listening to The Force. Nice. Last question. What does the future of crowdfunding look like? I think it looks very, very, very good. I think it's... Uh, um, I have a lot of clients that have been very successful using it, and it's, it's certainly a way to, to get money out there from, from countless sources. And I think it's good. Well, Vincent, this has been an awesome interview. This is your chance to give our audience your pitch, tell them what you're all about, where they should go, and uh, where, where they can find you. Well, I'm, I'm going to have a landing page for this. Uh, it's not set up yet, but if you, if you find me at the top of your Law.com, or you email me at uh, vincentlatempialaw.com, or or call me at 716-853-1111, and mention the word on the show. I'll give you a 20% discount on our rates, and uh, and try to work with you. I'm always very easy to work with, very approachable, and you, you call me anytime on my cell phone and, and talk to me directly in front of the, the gatekeepers, my circle at the desk, which try to. Keep everybody off my back and keep me working over here.
I really appreciate being on this podcast. It's been a lot of fun, and, and I, like I said, I really enjoy just meeting people every day and, and finding their new inventions and, and, and trying to make the world a better place. Awesome. Well, thank you, Vincent. Thank you, audience, for tuning in. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for all the show notes, the transcript, links to everything we talked about today. And of course, thank you to our crowdfunding podcast sponsors, The Gadget Flow and Backer Kid. Vincent, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Art of the Kickstart, the show about building a business, world, and life with crowdfunding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, awesome. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com and tell us all about it. There you'll find additional information about past episodes, our Kickstarter guide to crushing it. And of course, if you love this episode a lot, leave us a review at artofthekickstart.com slash iTunes. It helps more inventors, entrepreneurs, and startups find this show and helps us get better guests to help you build a better business. If you need more hands-on crowdfunding strategy advice, please feel free to request a quote on inventuspartners.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week.